take out your Bible and turn to Isaiah chapter 11. And we will look, be looking today at verses 1 through 10. Isaiah chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Pay careful attention to the reading of it. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our God remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this reading of your word. What a glorious reading this is. We pray, God, now for the preaching of your word. Be with this your servant. Help us to understand and rightly apply the truth that we may have today a glimpse of Jesus. We ask all this in our Savior's name. Even Jesus, Amen. Well, we are uh, once again studying the promises of God concerning the birth of the Messiah as we celebrate His first advent or the first arrival of Christ. And in so doing, it's impossible not to also consider the promises which uh, are in respect to His second advent. The incarnation of Christ and the second coming of Christ are intimately connected. And so, as we return to our short study in Isaiah and the covenant promises of God, which is to say the promises of covenant fulfillment, what we are given is a taste of the hope of Israel. The messianic hope, which had been expressed through chapters 7 and and then also 9, come to fruition, to full fruition here in chapter 11. Not only is the Messiah promised, 
or as it were, announced, but here he is depicted as ruling. The great and wonderful child promised in in chapters 7 and 9, that child who was given, that child who was born of a virgin, will rule as the great and mighty king. Now remember the scene in 8th century B.C. Israel, in the days of Isaiah. This was a time of great darkness and distress. The power of Assyria to the east had grown and was threatening Judah in the south. That power will move to the west, defeat the nation of Syria, and will defeat the kingdom in the north that is Israel. The king of Judah, Ahaz, is seemingly stuck, we might say, between a rock and a hard place. Should he join with an alliance with Israel in the north, or should he join with Assyria in order to protect Judah? The counsel of the prophet Isaiah, by the power of the Holy Spirit, has been up to this point to do neither one of those two things, but rather to trust In the Lord. Isaiah's message to the king and to the people who needed assurances that they were going to be all right, that God was going to provide for them, was to show them a glimpse of the one in whom they are to trust. That there is a great king, that there is a Messiah, a Savior, who would make all things right, who would make all things new. Isaiah gave to the people of Judah a glimpse of Jesus and the hope of the great king and ruler and defender of the covenant people and by God's grace, I hope today to show you a glimpse of Jesus as well. Isaiah was describing to them the hope for which the people were to wait. They wouldn't see it. It was yet in the future. The fulfillment of the promises given by Isaiah were not completed in their days. In fact, we can really say they're not fully completed even as Christ first came. Christ has come, defeated the power of sin and death at the cross, and He invites us to trust in Him, to rest in Him, and yet we too look forward to the day when the dead will be raised, and when we will be changed, as it were, in the twinkling of an eye, and Christ rules as the King over the new heavens and new earth. Which is to say, this passage which we read speaks as much today to us in the church as it did to the people in Isaiah's day. For what is being promised is a king whose rule and reign, at least most fully, is in our future also. Now it is true, of course, that Christ is even now presently ruling. He is ruling in a spiritual kingdom. He's ruling within the church. We understand that the king of the church is Christ. He is the head of this church. I'm not the head of the church. It's Christ who's the head of the church. The the elders here are not the head of the church. They rule under Christ. 
The day is coming when Jesus will rule over all the nations, not only spiritually, but physically and temporally. Christ will rule from the throne of David forever. This is the promise. But in our own day, there is no throne to speak of. And in Isaiah's day, the throne had fallen into such disarray, it was in the hands of a foolish and cowardly king named Ahaz. But in place of the cowardly and foolish house of David, or even the oppressive tyranny of Assyria, as was threatened, was a king in whose hands the concerns of even the weakest and lowliest of the people would be safe. They could find rest. Christ would come and set the captives free and lift up all of the oppressed. The downtrodden, the brokenhearted, the poor, the powerless, they would be protected, they would be lifted up by the hand of this mighty king. And he would usher in a reign of righteousness and peace and security. And he will bring rest and he will bring comfort to his people. And so this prophetic poem, which we have before us, comes at the end of a section in Isaiah dealing with judgment which was to come to the northern kingdom, Israel. The Assyrians would discipline the northern kingdom, and later Judah would be disciplined also. But though Israel and later Judah were to be disciplined by God, using Assyria and Babylon as his instruments, that was not to be the last word from God concerning them. The other nations used as tools of discipline will themselves be disciplined and come under divine judgment. And a remnant of Jacob will again return to the land. The land will be under the auspices of an anointed descendant of David. The root of Jesse will himself be the banner which signals the return of the people under the sovereign guidance of God. And so the word brought of judgment by means of Assyria was to be turned into a word of deliverance. An expression of the sovereign grace of a just, righteous, and faithful God. And this word of deliverance speaks to you and I today. As we live in a world of injustice, we live in a world of wickedness. We live in a world in which God will judge sin. And that word is also even now being spoken and the people are being delivered through the preaching and redeeming message of the gospel. As many sons we brought out of darkness and into the light of Christ's glorious kingdom. And so we begin our study in the 11th chapter of Isaiah and verse 1, and a very interesting image of a small, tender shoot which springs forth from a stump. So the picture here is of a felled tree. This is something that all of us are familiar with to some degree or other. There are, of course, some among us who this is what they do for a living. They, they chop trees down. But all of us probably have had trees come down in storms, or you've had to chop a tree down for some need or other. And as the tree lies there on the ground, the source of its life has now been taken away. It is gone. 
It's been removed from the roots. Though the main part of the tree is dead, the stump remains, and as it turns out here in the picture, there is still life in those roots. Now Jesus draws on the same image in Matthew 3 and Luke 3 when he says, Even now the axe is laid to the roots of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now this is what has happened to Israel in Judah. This is what happens to those who do not bear fruit. And so here Isaiah is drawing further on a picture that he actually had begun to sort of paint in chapter 6, where the tree, which is Israel, will be removed. It's going to be chopped down, but the stump would remain. And he says, the holy seed is its stump. That is to say, the, the stump itself is where the new growth would come. And this new growth is holy growth. And so within the larger context... An oracle has just been given, chapter 10, concerning Assyria's swift and sudden destruction. And in Assyria, her forests were to be nothing more than a field of stumps. Everything was going to be laid to bear. And this was going to be the case for the people of God as well, for they too were coming under judgment. But there was going to be a difference between Assyria and Israel. You see, Assyria would be cut down by Babylon along with Midia and Persia in 609 B.C. And that destruction was final. The stump of Assyria was to die all the way down to the roots. There would be no growth from any stump of that nation. And we can see this play out in history. Assyria is no more. With Israel, it was different. There would be new growth, which would issue from her stump. A shoot shall come forth from the stump of Jesse, it says. Which is to say, from the family and lineage of Jesse, the father of David, and from that tender shoot would come forth the restoration of the nation, and with that, the end of all war. Now we might ask this question, why does Isaiah use Jesse? Why mention Jesse? Why not David? Why not say the stump of David? Why the stump of Jesse? After all, that would seem more consistent with the other promises of God. It speaks about you know, the throne of David remaining forever. Why mention Jesse? Well, John Calvin suggests in his commentary that the use of Jesse in place of David was probably to downplay the house of David. After all, the kings of that house had become largely wicked and foolish and cowardly. And so the generational markers moved back some. David's house is still, of course, from Jesse, but the focus would be upon this one who comes not from riches, not from the palace, but actually comes from poverty like Jesse. The promised king would come through a royal family, but not from royalty, as it were. The promised one was to come from among the lower classes. David himself, as a son of Jesse, did not grow up in the palace, though his sons do. We also know that Jesus of Nazareth came from royal blood, and yet his parents, Joseph and Mary, were poor laborers, like Jesse. 
And so this branch, this, this tender shoot issuing forth from the stump, was to come from a place of poverty and yet be from the royal house. And that shoot would bear much fruit. In chapter 9's theme focused on the Messiah's birth, as we saw last time, here the focus is upon what he will do in his adulthood. He will be great. And verse 2, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Now in the Old Testament, the Spirit of the Lord rested upon those who had special tasks. Those, uh, the initial, initially the conception related to feats of great skill or perhaps uh, strength, power. For instance, the craftsmanship of Bezaliel, the artisan who constructed much of the furniture and accoutrements in the tabernacle. Instead of him in Exodus chapter 31, that he was to be, to be filled with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship. And so this one who made all the furniture and all of the bits in the, in the, uh, in the tabernacle, he was said to be filled with the Spirit of the Lord. Or we might speak of the power of Samson, in whom the Spirit of the Lord stirred, it says, in Judges. And in Judges 14, is said to have had great strength, such that he could tear a lion to pieces with his bare hands. And of course, we know also the Spirit of the Lord left Samson. Because he walked in disobedience, but later returns as he calls out to God. Later, still, the filling of the Spirit related to leadership, such that Saul and and then David were given the Spirit of the Lord. Thus, the Spirit of the Lord becomes an indication that God has given them a capacity which is beyond the merely human. The person so endowed was also to be of supreme ethical behavior. It is particularly here that we see the Davidic line of kings having failed miserably. Remember that that household, and particularly you think about Ahaz, but others, they had become arrogant and greedy. The, the, The house of David had become spiritually bankrupt. And thus the palace in Jerusalem seemed at this time not to be filled with the Spirit, to be empty from the Spirit. The Spirit isn't here, it doesn't seem. The people of Judah saw this. This is part of their dismay. This is partly why things are so dark and dim for them. The Spirit of the Lord doesn't seem to be occupying the the king, the house of the king anymore. But the Spirit would come once again upon the supreme leader of the nation. The shoot of Jesse then was to be characterized by God's Spirit being upon him. And the text gives a threefold manifestation of the Spirit which would rest upon this shoot from the stump of Jesse. First, the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding. This emphasizes the degree of wisdom he will possess. This shoot of Jesse will have wisdom which is able to look into the heart of a matter and accordingly, accordingly and decisively. This is, of course, a sharp contrast uh, with the, kings of, the king of Assyria or even the kings of Judah or Israel. But yet this is a characteristic we see in Jesus, isn't it? Who in his earthly ministry knew the hearts of men. And second, we read of the spirit of counsel and might. 
This describes the ability to devise the right course of action and the personal skill and drive to see it through. Much like a military general seeing the way to win the battle and having the courage to put that plan into action. Wisdom in this regard is not only knowing right from wrong, but knowing if an action is fitting to the situation. Christ, our King, always knows the fitting thing to do, for He does all things well. Third, He'll possess the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. In its fullest sense, knowledge is truth understood and rightly applied to life. The basis for the King's work is an experiential relationship with God. And the acknowledgement that a holy, just, and righteous God is the supreme reality of life and that you and I are are accountable to Him. And so the promised King and ruler would be filled with the Spirit. He was to be exceptional in His understanding and wisdom and might and knowledge and love and service to the Lord. He would be holy And he would produce great fruit. And further, he would be a righteous judge. This, of course, can speak of no one other than the one who is himself, God and man, the man, the Lord Jesus Christ. But our text goes on. Verse 3. The Messiah's delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Now, literally, the Hebrew word translated here, delight, is actually smell. The idea is that he will take such pleasure in the fear of the Lord, just as one may take great pleasure in incense or or a delightful scent. Often, when Sarah is cooking, there are delightful scents in my household. Jesus will have within his nostrils the delightful smell of the fear of the Lord. He loves his people who seek after him and his word. Second Corinthians 2 speaks along these matter in all this matter. We are the aroma of Christ to God, the Apostle Paul says. Among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Beloved congregation of believers are a delight within the nostrils of, the God, of our God and our King. He loves and delights in you. Which is to say... Well, actually moving on here. Further, verse 3, the great king is able to distinguish between appearance and reality. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Again, he knows and he understands the heart of the matter. Which is then to say that Christ the king is able to determine a matter with characteristics which are beyond merely human. He can look into the heart. A human judge can only make the best use of the faculties which God has given to him. Seeing. Hearing. This is how we can judge a matter. But our king goes beyond that. 
He goes beyond what he can see. He goes beyond what is heard. He can look into the heart. He judges with perfect equity. With righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Verse 4. And so the poor and the outcast here were to find their protection in the great king. Which then is to say that Christ is the guardian of the poor. He will not favor the wealthy over the poor, or will He favor the poor over the wealthy. But He will perfectly judge in righteousness. His justice is even-handed for all. The power and authority of the King then does not rest on political power. His is not an authority which is derived from the wealthy and from the powerful among us. His authority rests in God Himself. He judges a case, not based on the political outcomes, but what is right and good and equitable. This is true justice, isn't it? This is quite different from the experience we see in our own time, isn't it? I mean, think about things that have been in the news recently. Things that governing authority decisions they made, this is based on the wealthy and the powerful and and, in politics. Jesus is well beyond that. He decides on what is good and right and equitable. He brings true justice. That being said, Christ is the special protector of the poor who know that they are poor who realize that they are outcasts and oppressed. Now, who are they? Who are the truly poor? All those who realize their poverty in all good things. Isn't this what Jesus talks about in the Beatitudes? Matthew chapter 6, when He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or in Luke chapter 4, in verses 18 and 19, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. To be poor in spirit is to not seek advantage through the whims of men, through political favor. The truly poor recognize that their great need is that they need Jesus. This is why when we speak of the poor today, and how do we minister to the needy among us, we can say that their true need is not material things. It's Christ, ultimately. That means that all human beings really are poor. Christ came for those who understand their poverty. You need, your true need is in Christ. For He provides to you what you need, life in Him. An eternal kingdom. Christ the King fights for the poor in spirit and the meek before the Lord. For Christ as our King, He is a righteous judge who will, verse 4 again, strike the earth with the rod of His mouth and with the breath of His lips He shall kill the wicked. Notice, 
that our great king needs no weapons of enforcement. He doesn't come with an army. He doesn't come with, uh, you know, bullets and swords or any of those sorts of things. He requires no other display of his power other than the very words of his lips. That's all he needs. His, his tongue is a rod by which he convicts and destroys the wicked. His words are powerful. In this sense, too, Jesus needs no political alliances. He says what needs to be said. His words carry in themselves the force of law. As we read in Hebrews chapter 4, and verse 12, For the word of God what is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The words of Jesus are powerful. The words of the king drive deep and divide the indivisible with great power. And so our Messiah and our King will bring justice and equity to the earth because this is fundamental to His character. Look at verse 5. Righteousness should be the belt of His waist. Faithfulness, the belt of His loins. Because Christ is as He is, the whole of the cosmos can be understood in a coherent way. Righteousness, that is what is right and good, is is a belt for His garment. Everything is held up by Him. There is nothing arbitrary in His rule. There is nothing that's accidental. This is why we can speak of logic as God's logic. There's nothing arbitrary or accidental. This is how we're able to observe the world. We're able to observe systems because our God is is logical. This is why Proverbs 25.2 can say, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search a matter out. God has hidden in His creation many wonders, many marvels. And you and I have the joy of searching those things out and studying them and understanding them. God has given this to us. And we're able to because there's nothing arbitrary in the rule of Christ. Our God and our Creator, our King is righteous and faithful. These are the essential characteristics of His person. Like a belt holding up a garment. The metaphor of the belt suggests that these characteristics, which hold everything together, will also, like a belt, worn around a garment, be seen. You're going to see His character, the character of this King, the character of Christ, is observable even in nature. What will this perfect, righteous, and holy King do? Uh, What will he usher into our cosmos? He will usher in peace and the knowledge of the Lord. Isaiah, starting in in verse 6 now, describes a scene which has great eschatological implications, which show something of the rule of Messiah in the new heavens and the new earth. 
The most, hel- the most helpless, the, the innocent, will be at ease with the previously vicious predator. Verse 6, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together. Now, how do we understand this? Almost three basic ways to interpret this passage and others like it. I'll go through those briefly. The first is what we might call an overly literalistic approach. That is to say that the fulfillment of this prophecy will involve these animals literally living together as described. Now, while this understanding is certainly possible, it would require the fundamental alteration of the various predators' nature. The carnivorous wolf, lion, and leopard would have to become something other than what they've been. That is to say, fundamentally changed as creatures. Now, we should not totally discount this possibility. Certainly, God can fundamentally change his creatures. He certainly does for his people. And yet, the context of this passage seems to lead us to a somewhat different conclusion. So this brings us to a second possible interpretation, and that is a spiritualistic interpretation. Now in this approach, the animals represent various spiritual conditions within human beings. And so the previously cruel brute who has been submitted to Christ now lives among the sheep. Now while this might avoid some of the problems with taking an overly literalistic uh, interpretation where the various beasts become something other than they are, and as attractive as this view may be, it also introduces its own problems. For instance, how do we know for sure what is being referred to what? What is the correspondence between each figure or animal and a type of person? The passage itself doesn't answer these kinds of questions. It doesn't even give us a suggestion of what the answer might be. And so the interpreter is left with what is, has to be somewhat inventive. Ultimately, what you end up doing is allegorizing the passage unnecessarily. And so this leads us then to the third interpretive possibility, and that is of figurative. In this approach, the whole section is an extended figure of speech, which is making one overarching point. Namely, that in the Messiah's reign, the fears associated with insecurity, danger, wickedness, tyranny, all of these things will be removed for the individual and for the world. Which is also to say this, all things will be made new. There will be no more war, there will be no more strife, peace will reign in the land, no, in the entirety of the cosmos. Christ will reign with perfect equity and righteousness and all things will be made new. Now how God does this in His infinite wisdom and providence is, frankly, up to Him to decide. But you and I can rest assured that He will do this. He will bring freedom. He will bring security. He will bring peace. Now, all of these understandings are not necessarily mutually exclusive. There's possibilities which have overlap. Nevertheless, as the wolf dwells with the lamb, what we have here is a picture of the strong and of the powerful sojourning as a stranger in the land and relying on the otherwise weak. That is an incredible picture. This is not simply an equaling of the parties. This is a complete reversal. 
the strong become the needy, and the weak become the provider. The first should become the last, and the last should become the first. The lamb calls to the wolf, come and be welcome. And each of these animal pairs are essentially communicating the same message. And they will all be led by a child. Now who is this child? Well, this is a continuation of the previous theme from chapter 7 and 9. The son who would be given. The child comes, not as a strutting and arrogant ruler, but as an innocent and simple child who is leading both the strong and the weak. And the extended figure of speech continues. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den. So again, all of the predator animals eat with the prey. Their young rest and intermingle together. A transformation has occurred such that the lion begins to eat straw like the ox does. And all of this points to a contradiction such that even a nursing child could play around the den of a cobra in safety. Now, for the Israelite, familiar with poisonous snakes, and as many of you are, and certainly our African brothers and sisters are, the instinct of an adult would be quickly to snatch such a helpless and defenseless child away from a den of snakes. You don't let your kids play around snake dens. That's how to get them killed. I remember when we were visiting in Uganda, one of the missionary kids Um, like to play with black mambas. That's one of the most dangerous snakes in the world. You don't mess with these snakes. If this snake bites you and gets its venom in you, you will die. There is no antivenom. There is none. And even if there was, there's no time to get you to help. You're going to die. That's, that's the picture here. Okay, This is not just like you know, some of the non-venomous snakes that some of our kids can play with. No, these are snakes that if they bite you, you will die. In effect, what is being communicated in this prophecy is that the Messiah has brought an end to death. There is no longer any danger. The helpless no longer fear the poisonous snakes or, for that matter, any danger. Verse 9, look at verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Here the central view of the passage is brought to clarity. Everything, everything that you know in the in the poetry that's come before is now brought together. The enemies of God and his people can no longer be hurt or destroyed. You will live in safety. You will not, there will be a complete removal of all anxiety because of a relationally based understanding of God and His ways. The 
whole of the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. Everyone will know God. He will bring to His covenant people who inhabit this new heaven and new earth peace. Because that's what's being described here, right? This is, being, this is a description of the new heavens and new earth. He will faithfully rule with righteousness. He will rule with a full commitment to them as they will be committed to Him. And the fullness of this knowledge and the fullness of this commitment shall be as the waters cover the sea. Well, how much water is in the sea? All of it's water. Well, that's the point. It's fullness. It's complete. And it's final. Everywhere. Everywhere. God is present in holiness in every place to the fullest extent. And that's the point. Finally, verse 10 returns us to the theme of the first two verses. Acts as something of an inclusio or, a, or bookends to our text. The root of Jesse, that that tender branch which has come forth from the stump of Jesse, shall stand as a banner, drawing all of the nations to himself. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. Acts 2.39 Previously, in Isaiah 5, the Lord had raised the banner to the nations to come and judge Israel. He'd raised the banner, come judge my people. Here, He raises a banner to call His people home. But included is not only the literal children of Abraham, but members from every tribe and every nation and every people and every language. This banner is raised and the call is going out to all the nations. Come and come in and enjoy the glorious rest found only in Christ. For the hand of God not only brings judgment for sin, remember this is the context with Isaiah, right? Then Israel is going to be judged, the nations are going to be judged. But the hand of God does not only bring judgment, He brings redemption. And beloved, this is demonstrated in the redeeming work of our Messiah, Jesus Christ. He was lifted up as a banner and as a testimony of God's faithfulness to His covenant promises. And all who look upon Him will be saved by His death and His resurrection. In Christ, all the nations are healed by faith in Him. This is the hope. This is, our, this is the promise to us, isn't it? I hope that by the Word and Spirit that Isaiah 11 has today given to you a glimpse of Jesus. Jesus Christ, our Savior. He is the banner who has been raised. He is the one who is signaling to all the nations, salvation has come. He is the shoot which issues forth from the stump of that nation, the house of Jesse, he is the one who bears much fruit. And in him, you too can bear fruit as well.
Jesus Christ came into our world at His birth to live and die for sinners, to conquer sin and death, to bring salvation to the nations. And Christ will come again in glory. He will rule with the greatest wisdom. He will bring peace and an end to all war. And He is a signal banner to the nations to come find comfort and rest in Him. This is the hope that you and I have. You see, it's not that we're looking forward to Christmas to come. You know, I know on the calendar in two weeks, it'll be Christmas. But it's not like we're looking forward to Christmas. Beloved congregation, it's already come. Christmas has already come. Christ came. And beloved congregation, He is coming again. And you and I remember and believe. We trust and we rest in Him. We look forward to the day when He ushers in the fullness of His kingdom. We live in a world that's filled with darkness. Nations come, nations go, peace ebbs and flows. There are threats in this world, even now, to peace and security. What is the solution to war? What are we to do if there's a total collapse of our society and of our nation? I know there's some of you who worry about these things. What are we going to do? Isaiah told Ahaz and the people this, and so I I tell you the same, trust in the Lord. Look to the coming of Christ. Do not look to the politicians. Do not look for wisdom and insight of men. That's not where our hope and rest is found. Look to Christ. Trust in the Lord. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are so grateful to you for these promises and for the promise of fulfillment. We look forward to the day when Christ returns again. But for now, we... We raise the banner of Christ to the nations. We invite them to come into His rest. Help us, O God, to be faithful to Your Gospel. Help us, ourselves, to rest in Him. That we may not be anxious about this world. That we may be anxious about the, the things that may happen around us. That we may trust in the Lord as Isaiah has told Ahaz, as we now know too, that we are to trust in Christ. For He is our great King and our Savior. We praise You in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen.